from Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local in Warren, Pennsylvania, this is Smoke, The Disappearance of Damien Sharp. Dearest Sheriff, first clue, I'm not here, nor will I return. I feel my sentence is going to be unjust because the DA has openly admitted that he's coming after me for the murder of Damien Sharp. I have a problem with this because I did not murder him. So instead, I'm getting the fuck out of your commonwealth state, shove it straight up your asses. Second clue, in less than 14 hours, I'll be gone, so hurry. Thank the DA for missing all of my beautiful flowers, 36 pounds of sweet, plump tomatoes. So I'm headed for a warm, pussy-filled place with a pocket full of money and a book bag full of ripe, luscious tomatoes. Have a nice day, James Sarver. I'm really jealous that I asked Dean to read Jim's letter to you this week, guys, because it's basically my favorite piece of documentation to quote directly in this entire case. I realize that that makes me a child and I'm fine with it. Anyhow, I told you last week that we were going to find out what retired Pennsylvania State Police Detective and private investigator John Herzog learned from Jim Sarver over the course of his work on this case with Damien's mom, aunts, and grandma. The fact is that Herzog didn't really learn anything from Jim directly because he didn't talk to Jim. At least he didn't document talking to Jim. We'll take a look at why over the course of this episode, but I'll be honest, we'll have to do a bit of speculation, and that's nothing new for us. So, look, I covered that letter that Jim opened, Dearest Sheriff, but which was received in District Attorney Rick Hernan's office on November 10th, 2003, last season. I spoke with Jim one year ago, last January, shortly after he was released from State Correctional Institution Camp Hill on October 20th, 2021. Jim served a total of just under 20 years for a series of unfortunate events that started on August 16th, 2002. So check this out real quick before I get started on Jim. We did our best to cover everything about him last season, but that was in the midst of an emergent issue with the Crime Stoppers number, which had not been ringing for years when I was made aware of that fact about halfway through season one. Listener Aiden Neeport was the first person to reach out and let me know about that issue, and Aiden kept on it right alongside me. I'm just saying it really does make a difference when you text me, for real, because that phone's ringing again. That's a good start. I didn't get to really give you what I feel is super important about Jim last season, what with the Crime Stoppers kerfuffle and the fact that I was trying to just mainline a bunch of new info directly into the social discourse in one big dose, straight up, and things got a little twisty there in the middle. Now, I have this set of notes from John Herzog, and I have to tell you that I was disappointed but not surprised that he never spoke with Jim that summer. Mainly because, as I read through the notes, I noticed that the focus seemed to be mainly on Damien's brother Stephen, his friend Dave, adult family members, and a few ancillary characters, as far as we know right now, like Albert, who called Damien's house when the family went to check on him, and who offered to hit the streets for information on two separate occasions. That's not all for lack of trying, and although Herzog himself never documented a conversation with Jim Sarver, it appears that the police did interview him at some point between May and October of 2002. There's no indication of any sort of timeline, and the nature of the interviews are sketchy at best. There's just not enough here to really evaluate those interactions between law enforcement and the person that many would come to later consider the most likely one with knowledge and or involvement in Damien's disappearance that they weren't disclosing. I mean, he was the last person to see Damien, after all. 
Bryce Blackman dropped Damien off at the corner of Dahl and Prospect Streets on Saturday, May 25th, and Damien walked on aluminum crutches up to Jim Sarver's three-story apartment building at 332 Prospect Street. The building hulks over the single-family homes and duplexes that have been here since, like, I don't know, the beginning of time. But this one is its own thing, you guys. When he got there, Damien would have hopped up a set of metal stairs, much like those you'd find on a fire escape. The metal grating with the teeth to sort of grip your shoes and help you defy physics and gravity to get you where you're going. That kind of staircase. On crutches. With a knee injury severe enough that Jim told me when we spoke last January, a follow-up visit and a surgery consultation were planned in the week after Memorial Day. The staircase, you guys, has been an issue for me since day one, or day whatever, when I first drove past the place after learning what Damien's last known location had actually been. If you're local to Warren, ride past it sometime and just imagine that experience on crutches. Everyone who's ever had crutches tells me it would not have been a big deal at all, but I have zero interest in anything that resembles physical exertion unless it's labor, for which I'm being fairly compensated, and that would have been a big issue for me. But if you're doing a Damien's Last Route drive while you listen, maybe just head left on Prospect off Jackson Avenue and get back on track at Jefferson Street and see what kind of vibes you get as you drive past 332 Prospect. I'd love to hear about it. Anyhow, I asked Jim at one point whether Damien needed any help getting in or out of his apartment, apartment 12, since it was accessible by one singular route, the spooky metal steps of death and pain, or just the steps if you're boring. Here's what Jim told me. He climbed the stairs by himself, but I certainly helped him when he left. He was a tough guy for sure. Jim gave me tons of information over the course of several weeks last winter and early spring. We talked about lots of stuff, not just Damien, and he went back and forth so many times between saying that he got why law enforcement focused on him the way they did, but also offering lots of reasons why... When you thought about it, he didn't make any kind of sense as a person of interest at all. There were around 80 total instances of the word Sarver throughout the 98 pages of text in the Herzog document. The sections of Jim's messages to me take up around 25 printed pages, with space also allocated to headings and editorial or investigative asides regarding the conversation as it developed in real time. I made an index of both those documents and compared them because I'm a giant nerd, and none of that shit really even matters right now in this episode because it took up seven pages of me talking and all that it really said was that John Herzog talked to a bunch of people about Jim and he never actually talked to Jim that I know of. The only Jim-related Herzog encounter that I really want to tell you about in any great detail at all is a pretty strong one, so check this out. I do not know exactly what was going on in Warren County on October 25th, 2002. Maybe everyone was just tripping out on refinery fumes or something, but Herzog fielded two calls. One was third-hand from someone who claimed that someone else told them that they saw Damien in East Randolph, New York. Herzog detected the phone number for that person who allegedly said it first, and that person was like, no, man, I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about or who told you that. So Herzog dropped that one. Later that afternoon, Herzog wrote that someone reported a pair of crutches in the bushes of a residence on Warren's east side near Merritt Motorcar. The only residences over there at that point in time, just so you guys know, were owned by Frank Geiger. We'll get to Frank later, 
But City of Warren PD officer Brandon Deppin went to that residence and found no crutches, Herzog noted. Finally, he writes, at 5.30 p.m., quote, I received a call from my client. That would have been Janine, you guys. And she advised that she was in Bylos in Warren between 4.45 and 5 p.m. today. And she was talking with one of the managers about her son and the flyers that had been put up. As the manager and I were talking, someone came up behind us and this man said, are you talking about Damien Sharp? I said, yes. And this man said, I'm Jim. I'm a friend of Damien. I said something. I think it was, are you Sarver? And he said, yes, I am. I got really scared and I said to this Jim, I hope the police find who did this and get the man before I do because I'll shoot him. Sarver then said, are you insinuating something, ma'am? I did not even finish talking to the store manager. I just got out of the store. I guess I'm not going to be shopping in Warren anymore. Sarver was with his wife or girlfriend and two kids. One was a new baby and the other was like two or three years old. Oof, you guys. Fucking oof. I swear to you that the inside of my car would have looked like a bear had been locked inside of it overnight had I been Janine leaving the Bilo supermarket that day. I'm in fully activated bout mode right now just because I'm a mom and it is way, way too easy for me to imagine the utter helplessness and rage she probably felt right then. To think that the person I believed to have killed my child just rolled up on me in the damn produce section to insert himself into my grief and lamentation. I can't even go there in my head for too long. It's not a good place to be. So you know me in details and unbelievable bullshit, yeah? So you know I can't with any of it. Something has to be done. So I reached out to Jim Sarver's girlfriend at that time to see if she remembered that incident. And she didn't. It's been 20 years, but she did confirm that in October of 2002, she had just had a baby that June. And she did have another child that was three or four, close enough to Janine's estimated two or three years of age, and that child would have been with her that weekend. I asked, is that something that Jim would have said or done? Does it sound like Jim to you, or is this crazy talk? This woman told me that, quote, he could have said something or asked, it's hard to say, but if they know I had kids, then I would say words were said. It's been so long. It's not crazy because they knew the age of my oldest and that I had a baby. One of the things that's been described to me by people close to Damien's dad, Skip, is how the mystery of who was ultimately responsible in Damien's case haunted him. At one point, Skip's brother, Mike, told me that Skip was so convinced Sarah was his man that he had Mike make up about 50 t-shirts with Damien's photo on the back and some numbers to call, but then on the front, a photo of Jim Sarver in the words, Have you seen Damien Sharp? Still missing. Maybe you should ask Jim Sarver. Wanted for questioning. Had Skip maybe held a door open for this person in town or shaken their hand? Said good morning across a diner or breakfast table, bottom around at the bar? The fact that he could never know whether the person who took Damien was living right beside him, under his nose, and encountering him regularly, it ate Skip up a little every day, I've been told. It permeated his life for the five years he lived after Damien vanished, and his death was a tragedy. There are so many individual tragedies in this story, with Damien's being at the top. Lives lived over the past 20 years have been so lived in the absence of, for many, a central part of them. It's a tragedy for me that Janine can't be out here beside me raising hell. I feel like the two of us together would have been a handful, honestly. It's a tragedy for the whole world that we never got unleashed on it together. Anyhow, my point here is that this story is fascinating to a lot of people because crime is interesting and mysteries are addictive. 
puzzles, riddles, and this case is nothing if not a big old box of riddles, but it's a true story. It's a story about real people. So as I'm reaching out to people like Jim Sarver and his girlfriend and others, I'm acutely aware of how my coverage of this case affects their lives. And I'm really grateful that now, after 20 years of relative radio silence, the central characters are still showing up, still willing to help largely. Even when it wrecks their day to hear that little notification ding and see my face on their screens, it's inconvenient and they don't gain a lot from it in most cases, except maybe a headache but they show up anyhow. In this entire metric ton of tragedies, you guys, that may be one of precious few blessings. And far be it for me to turn down one of those. <sighs> I'm not even kidding you, though. The police would have shown up in that parking lot to find me literally gnashing my teeth on the upholstery in rage and frustration. Can you even imagine? How long can you sit and try to imagine? Challenge yourself if you're a parent. Sit and put yourself in the seat of Janine's car outside the Bilo supermarket in the minutes after she left that interaction with Jim Sarver and notice how your guts feel. That's why it matters that we find this man. Janine's guts have been like that for 20 years, you guys. I need a break. And so do you. We'll be back in a minute. Prospect Mansions last winter after the former owner put me in touch with the current owner and the two of them set up a morning for me to come stand inside of apartment 12 where Damien last stood and take it in for myself. Sadly, the owner of the building in 2002 had died but he left behind a stunning handwritten ledger in an orange spiral notebook and sometimes I grab that thing out and run my fingers down the crinkled, scribbled pages because that's a sensory experience I can never get enough of. In any case. Herzog went to that property owner in October of 2002 himself after learning that the police had never really snooped around inside of there after Damien blooped out. Herzog writes on October 28th that Gunther, the property owner, told him, James Sarver lived in apartment 12 in January 2002 until moving out of his apartment the third week in July. Mr. Gunther advised that when Sarver moved out of the apartment, he left it relatively clean, better than Gunther thought he would leave it. Sarver had paid his rent up to the end of the month, but he moved out early. Mr. Gunther said that once he had a fire in there, in the stove, Sarver turned on the oven and someone had put a pair of sneakers inside it. They caught fire, lots of smoke, but not much damage. Once, Gunther said that he heard Sarver and a neighbor got into a pushing match over people knocking at the neighbor's door at all hours of the day and night, thinking it was Jim's. Another neighbor who lived in the third floor attic apartment told Gunther that she had smelled pot coming from Sarver's place on the regular, but other than that, he said... Jim wasn't really a remarkable tenant in any kind of way. Gunther told Herzog that Jim didn't have a car when he lived there, but he rode a bike. As a matter of fact, Gunther said, a downstairs neighbor who was still living there had been keeping that bike on the porch for three or four months, since around the time Sarver moved out. Gunther, when asked, said that he never saw anyone, quote, wearing all black with fingernails painted black, end quote, around the apartments. And that's a Herzog quote, but I want to highlight it here because... Like, I get that the most noticeable thing physically about Damien was the black and the nail polish and the goth and the ugh, but for real, it's a little weird. Like, even if 
Gunther were just sitting across the street, staring out his window at the apartment building all day and taking notes on every person to come and go, which I assure you he was not. He still would not have been able to see the fingernails. The crutches, you guys, the crutches are the most obvious personal effect, even before the nail polish. But whatever, I'm probably nitpicking. As Herzog was leaving that day, he asked Gunther if it would be okay for the police to do some testing in Jim's old apartment, and Gunther said it was okay with him, and he talked to the current tenant, who moved in a week or so after Jim vacated. I looked this Kevin guy up who moved into apartment 12 after Jim moved out, because honestly, what better source am I going to find 20 years after the fact than the very next person who moved in? These are small economy apartments, you guys, and they were a little rough back in the day, but I'm confident as hell that if there were like blood stains on the ceiling or the whole bathroom smelled like bleach forever, no matter how many windows you opened, it's just, you'd think that within months of a murder, there would have been a smell or a stain or something for Kevin to complain about. But you just never know, especially when, in this case, your best possible next source is no longer with us. It's a difficult part of this process. Anyhow... That's really enough from the past. I mean, it's not, but there's more, but we'll have to come back to it because I want to fast forward to January 4th, 2022, when I reached out to Jim Sarver on Facebook, knowing he'd been released that past October. I kept tabs on Facebook for a few weeks following his release, and I didn't see a profile pop up, so I figured I'd give it some time and check back. Honestly, this was my first time contacting someone I actually thought might have been responsible for Damien's disappearance. I'd spent months imagining what that would be like because despite my predilection for taking on only the spiciest of projects, I really don't enjoy confrontation and will avoid it when I can. I was as relieved as I was disappointed to find him not on Facebook in those first few weeks after his release, but then it slipped my conscious mind. Well played, conscious mind, well played. I mostly unconsciously avoided messaging Jim from October to January, but by New Year's, I don't know, maybe I harnessed some of that fresh new slate spirit and just whipped up a message and I hit send. This project had only ever been investigative up to that January. By then, my deadline to start writing and producing episodes had come, and so anybody I didn't have yet, that first week of January was the time to get to them, if I could. I expected to wait a minute. I expected to have to check back to see whether Jim had ever even read the message, and I wasn't sure he'd respond to me at all. But then, hi James, I wrote, I'm making a podcast about the Damien Sharp case, and I've been hoping to get a hold of you, mostly about that letter you wrote to the sheriff in 2003. You said that you felt you'd be sentenced improperly based on the statement Rick Hernan made that he was coming after you for Damien's murder. Can you tell me more about that? Because I asked him directly and he won't answer the question. So now I'm more interested because I feel like he's uncomfortable about me asking about it. All that was true as hell. On January 1st, I'd sent Rick one of my famous novel length, please talk to me messages. No, for real. I actually opened with a, hey, Rick, I'm a former Times Observer reporter, but please don't sign off yet. (laughs) And a little yikes emoji for good measure. Basically, I asked Rick if he'd talk to me, and kind of like he told John Herzog back in 2002, Rick answered me a couple hours later that while he was excited to see new publicity for the case and remained hopeful that someone would one day come forward with the case-solving tip or piece of information, he didn't feel that he was the best source of information on Damien as he, quote, had no first-hand knowledge. My best bet, he said, would be to contact the Warren PD. Rick told me that it had been some time since he'd worked on the case and that he no longer had any files to refer to, but he wished me the best in 
bringing Damien's case back to the forefront of the public's awareness. I thanked him for getting back to me, but then I pushed a little. I'd been speaking with Chief Joe Spraveri at the police department since August, I told Rick, as well as Detective Tony Comenti, and then I was just like, you know what, I feel like you maybe are the best source on this one thing, it's a letter. I was in the middle of leaving one research stop and getting ready to head to another, so I hit Rick with some of my famous speech-to-text decoder ring-style questions, essentially saying that I found Jim's 2003 letter and did he remember it. I remember the name, he said, and that he was somehow a person of interest in Damien's case, but I have no recollection of a letter. That was nearly 20 years ago. I simply do not recall if there was or wasn't any letter. I'm sorry. So I was about to let it go, even though I had the letter in front of me from that prothonotary's office trip beforehand, and I said, thanks, enjoy the weekend, and I was just about to give up because I was still a little baby investigative journalist and quite squeamish still about bothering people. I've outgrown much of that. But luckily, the universe smiled and apparently told Rick to hit me back, and he did, and he was like, which was his 2003 case? Because I think he had more than one. I got Rick curious. I'm pretty good at that sometimes. So I hit Rick with a novel summarizing Jim Sarver's criminal history from August of 2002 to the present, highlighting that Jim had never committed any crimes in prison, according to the UJS. And then I was like, hey, I can just send you a picture of that letter right now if you'd like to read it. Sure. Thanks, Rick responded. Once he'd read it, Rick was like, interesting, thanks. Then he asked whether I knew Jim and where he was now. I told Rick that Jim had been released from SCI Camp Hill and was being monitored through state parole, to the best of my knowledge, where he was living. I hope he's going straight, Rick told me. He's almost 20 years older. He served a long time. Then I totally Hermione Grangered Rick Hernan, dumping a whole crap ton of unnecessary info on him, and I ruined any chance of ever getting an interview from him, probably right at that point, and Rick smiled and nodded and walked away without responding. Fair. <laughs> so on January 4th, I reached out to Jim Sarver, because if at first you don't succeed, right? And I figured, how many times has this guy been asked, did you kill Damien Sharp? Right? Like, he's probably tired of answering it and hearing it. And anyhow, there was that whole conversation with Rick Hernan a few days ago that left me frustrated as hell and just not wanting but physically needing more information. Stat, or my brain was going to melt and leak out of my nose and run down the storm drain and die right then. If Rick wouldn't tell me more about that letter, I needed to talk to Jim. Here's Jim's response. My information came secondhand. My attorney hinted at this, and it made perfect sense to me because his family was at every court hearing that I had. Plus, Rick Hearn and the DA was interviewing other inmates as soon as they came into the county jail, trying to hoax them into saying that he had information that I had something to do with his disappearance. It was all hearsay. But I had guys, inmates, telling me that the DA was offering them deals to say what he needed them to say to come after me in regards to this case. Now, inmates talk, but I had guys telling me this the first time I met them. Like, oh shit, you're the guy the DA was trying to get me to set up. Things like that. Numerous times throughout our conversations, Jim was upfront about his legal history. In fact, he led with it in a follow-up message that came minutes after that first one. I was a bad guy. I certainly did wrong. But in my opinion, I served more time because this DA had it out for me over the sharp disappearance. In fact, I'm not comfortable speaking about this, not because I have anything to hide, but because people out there still believe that I'm the guy. I mean, they actually interviewed cellmates I had in prison. It's my belief that they were so focused, are so focused, that the truth eluded them. Like I said, I'm certainly no angel, and I did plenty of wrong in my life. But the truth is, I had nothing to do 
whatsoever with whatever happened in this case. I hope, I hope that's helpful. Have a good night. So I backed right the hell off Sarver right then, mostly because he took me off guard. I was not expecting unsolicited chatty follow-ups, and I'm not used to anything I'm trying to do being easy. This felt way too easy. But even as I gently told Sarver, holy shit, thanks, um, so listen, no worries on not remembering if you happen to think of anything, blah, 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 and then bam, immediately, he responded again. Sarver must not have been that suspicious because he rolled right on, telling me immediately about an incident in which Frank Geiger, another person of interest in Damien's disappearance at one point, sent him a message to keep his mouth shut about the case while Sarver was in state prison. And honestly, I was kind of like, okay, hold up there, my man. Like, I needed a minute to process, but Sarver was ready to go on in this entire conversation, so my choice was to strap in and go with it or be a giant pussy. <laughs> I knew I'd get to say it. And tell him it was late and I had a bedtime. So I strapped in, obviously. What's crazy about this is there's only so many people who could help him get what he was looking for that day. I know he knew of Frank because he dealt with him in the past. He told me that much before. I can tell you I had nothing to do with this disappearance, and I hope the truth comes out for him and his family. I asked Sarver whether it was weed or cocaine that Damien came to buy. I mean, at this point, I truly believed that I'd collect Sarver's answer to that question, and then that part of the mystery would be solved. Little baby investigator foolishness. I'm still trying to figure that out, and literally everyone has a strong opinion that's just different enough from everyone else's that I can't really lump them into even loose groups. It's absurd. The level of dissonance on this topic is absurd. Even having a first-hand conversation with the person himself who stood with Damien in that apartment on Prospect Street on Saturday night, May 25th, right before poof, I guess. As I remember, he was trying to buy weed, not coke. He had money that his buddies, the twins, took from their aunt or something or other. I didn't know them, but they'd sparred with us once I, at his apartment. Nope, that's absolutely what he wanted, a pound of weed. And honestly, I more likely than not could have helped him. But he freaked me out. Did you ever see a dog get real excited when it hears a familiar conditioned word or phrase like treat or car or walk? <laughs> that was me right then. Same exact face. I don't know if my tail wagged, but it probably did. First of all, I do know which twins Sarver's talking about here. I graduated with them. Their names were Jared and Josh, and I'm currently trying to get a hold of both of them. So if you know them, send them my way, please. But also, Jim is confusing these twins with Pat, who actually, like, factually was the one that gave Damien that money. The twins did not give Damien money. Jim's just remembering them because he met them and hung out with them while Damien was around, enough to have embossed them somewhere in his brain in this situation. He never met Pat. It's a flawed memory and probably unintentional, but I want to bring it up here and be very clear about it. We may talk more about the twins, Josh and Jared, if they get in touch with me and if I'm able to talk with them. And maybe even if not, but if I'm able to find out some more information on something I want to know. Fingers crossed on that, you guys. I have some pressing questions for them, actually. But also, and more exciting to me at that particular moment, so how, I asked Jim, how did he freak you out? Like, specifically? Well, him and I partied a few times. I did like an eight ball with him and the twins once, but we never sold each other anything. Uh, we smoked plenty of joints, we did some drinking, but out of the blue, he wants to buy a pound of weed. Okay, he's good enough of a guy. But then he pulls out crisp $100 bills. 
clearly from Iraq because the numbers even matched or they were in order. And I freaked out. I thought this was strange. So there's absolutely no way for me to tell you whether those bills were sequential or not. But having spent some time working on becoming a low-key drug dealer in Warren, just like John Herzog spent 26 years becoming a detective in Warren, that flavored his worldview. I think Sarver was naturally twitchy in general when he was selling and may have been aware of the PSP watching his house at that time, as Herzog learned in previous notes that they had been around that time, trying to build enough to justify a search warrant for drugs. If those bills came from a grown-up stash, it's likely that they were in pretty good shape. They may have been some crispy hundies, and that probably set off a little alert in Jim's subconscious brain like, whoa, that money does not look trashy enough to be coming out of that pocket. I get it. The sequential serial numbers thing, it's a stretch for me. Whatever the case was, the fact is that Jim got strong confidential informant or CI vibes from Damien. He went on to tell me. So he started playing phone games, declined the sale, and saw the social portion of the drug deal experience through for another 30 minutes or so, then left the apartment with Damien in a little bit. So this became kind of a regular thing. I'd hear from Jim a few times a day, or he'd hear from me and we'd chat for a minute. Often it was when I was cooking dinner, doing laundry, the everyday shit that I'd be doing otherwise. Just also trying really, really hard to find a cadaver and going so far as to poke bears whose dispositions I had less than zero real awareness of before doing so. My 30s got boring. You can't let me get bored. Anyhow, Jim eventually gave me a little more detail on that night. Someone had to have dropped him off because he was on crutches. I'm fairly certain he made a call. I'm not positive, but we hung out for a while. Maybe no less than a half hour. And he invited me to a pay-per-view fight at his dad's house, maybe. He asked if I wanted to party... I thought it was up Morrison Run, but it, it may have been up Brown Run. When I left, I went down to my sister's house to borrow her tent and camping gear, but she was out camping herself, I think. I couldn't find her gear, so I went back home and I dug my little tent out, and later in the evening I tried to call him, to hook back up like we were supposed to, and somebody answered the phone and asked if it was me, but they wouldn't tell me who they were. I actually walked down to his apartment at least twice, and everything was open, but nobody was there. And after the second time, I figured I'd missed out. I went and bought a 40 and some food, rented a movie, and went back home. And whenever we parted ways, I helped him down the stairs, and I was under the impression he had a ride coming. I jumped on my bike, and I went to my sister's, and I never saw him again. Yes, yes, I did catch that part where Sarver told me that he went to Damien's apartment at least twice Saturday night, May 25th, to find it, quote, open but no one was there, end quote. I have to assume that Sarver knows the apartment was open, and that by open he means unlocked because he tried the door and found it to be so and went inside of the apartment and found no one around. That's fucking significant to me. If it's true... I can't tell you whether it is or not, but since I don't know, I'm going to pull the hell out of that thread until I get bored with it. I promise you that. Anyhow, put a pin in that shit. We'll be back to it. More details followed, and I'm telling you that I'm already way over my editorial budget, but I struggle with not giving everyone every detail I got from Sarver that night because I swear to you, it is not just the thing that people say. That is precisely, precisely where the devil always is. Is in those sweet, sweet details. So here's some more. I think he brought a videotape because he wanted to show me a particular grappling move or a fight. I remember watching something. I take it back, it, it was certainly more than a half hour. Closer to an hour would be my guess. I told the police all of this. 
I'm certain they checked my phone records because I had a state cop tell me directly he believed I killed him, and I set the calls up to make myself look innocent. Way too much credit because honestly, I was horrible at being a criminal. James went on to tell me how he met Damien and more about the nature of their sort of friendship. We didn't hang out all the time, but we spoke every time our paths crossed. MMA, combat sports, that was our connection. We both loved controlled combat. He was most certainly going to go to the party that night. He invited me. I remember one time I walked him back to his apartment and he was dragging what appeared to be a dead chicken. It was fake, but you couldn't tell. He was so drunk he could hardly walk, but still he wanted to spar. That was our connection. Partying and mostly combat sports. So my original little baby theory, once I'd sniffed my way as far into this story as the Prospect Mansions and Jim Sarver, was that having a shared love of controlled combat sports like mixed martial arts, jujitsu, and with Damien having been a member of the Warren Dragons wrestling team through high school, was it possible that he also got into a little bit of a sparring match just to pass the time or to work off any of the substances he and Jim might have had or just because he enjoyed sparring a lot, which everyone confirms? Damien was at a distinct disadvantage with that knee that weekend, but with the right motivation, he could get through a lot of inconveniences. The staircase he had to navigate just to get to Jim's apartment, for instance, and even the walk home, if the ending to Jim's encounter is true, would have been a pain. There's a steep downhill grade from Prospect Street at Jackson, and it would have been slightly downhill once he got the 0.6 miles or so to Cedar Street, too. That's a good 10-minute walk on two good legs without crutches, and he'd have had to cross Pennsylvania Avenue at the bottom of Prospect to cut across Cedar, which is a crossing I try to avoid as a driver whenever possible because it's stupid how perfectly people will space themselves out to wreck your whole day. It's inconsiderate. That was a bad crossing for a guy on crutches, is what I'm telling you. I asked Jim if Damien was still trying to spar with his sparring friends, even with a knee injury, because, I mean, small apartment, fair amount of cash, and potentially some drugs in the mix. The two may or may not have been doing cocaine or other drugs together. One wrong hold, one wrong twist or bump, and Damien could easily have fallen, which, in the matchbox of an apartment that was Prospect Mansion's number 12, there are any number of corners, edges, and less-than-gentle surfaces for him to have banged his shit off of, or otherwise accidentally been hurt pretty bad. But again, I had never been inside the apartment at that point, and certainly I wasn't there when Damien was having his last known encounter with Jim, so it was just a theory. So who better to run it by, yeah? Hey Jim, any chance you two were sparring that day and Damien got knocked the fuck out and you panicked and had some problems to take care of all of a sudden? Maybe? Possibly? No way. He could hardly walk. It took a full 30 seconds for him just to hop down the stairs. He was bummed because he couldn't train. He had a surgery planned, I think, the following week or something. He was hoping that he could speed up the recovery, I think. There were a bunch of times that conversations would end when both Jim and I had to sleep if we were to be functional the next day, and functionality is important, so we'd pick back up the next day or when either of us was free again. Sometimes they'd be on and off, punctuated by both of our jobs. Those transitions sounded like this. I have to go. I truly hope this information is helpful in some way. I really don't care what people think because I know I wasn't involved whatever happened after we went our separate ways. You have a good day. Got to get ready for work. If you could think of any more questions to ask, it helps me jog my memory. I really have nothing to hide 
and would like to help. Not to clear my name, but for his sake, for the sake of his family. I can't imagine what his family must have felt and still feel. I've got someone in my ear, no matter which person I'm considering as a potential murderer. They're real people. They don't have to talk to me, and they can tell me to screw off at literally any point that they choose. I have nothing to offer them but a potential headache. And because I'm relentlessly curious, I'm on the phone 100% of every day in some capacity or another. Right now, my phone is silenced, sitting beside me as I write, but it's everything I can do not to take yet another break and answer yet another message that feels too urgent not to. Just like finishing the script feels urgent, just like finding Damien's goddamn body so his mother can put it to rest in her lifetime feels so damn urgent. All I can do is treat them like real people, accept what they tell me always with the knowledge that it could be straight up unfiltered lies on lies on lies. I won't ever know that unless I take it, run it through more sieves, check it against more people's stories, ask others what they think of it, like how I reached out to Sarver's girlfriend at the time to see if she remembered that encounter with Janine at Bilo Supermarket in late October of 2002. So when Sarver came at me with some questions of his own later that afternoon, I kind of felt obligated to answer them. This is not something that happens when the cops are interviewing you. It's seriously unethical if you're a therapist to self-disclose too deeply or too often, but I'm not a cop and I'm not Jim's therapist. I am a crazy girl with a mic who wants to hear stories. So why wouldn't I relax that boundary to make Jim feel more comfortable too? Regardless of whether Jim was or was not, I was having a transparent and honest conversation with him while we were talking. I hope that what I'm sharing with you of what he gave me in return hits somebody in just the right way that it makes a difference. I don't think that John Herzog would have gotten all these details, and I don't think John Herzog would have entertained an incoming question like this. I have a couple questions for you. Did you think I would speak to you? Was the thing in the beginning about the DA really a topic, or was it just your attempt to get me to speak? He really did attempt to get numerous inmates to not tell the truth, but to tell the truth he wanted to be told. Numerous people I don't know told me the same story time and time again. Then the state police threatened me numerous times regarding this issue. I was just wondering, was this your in with me? Sweet mother of God, no. No, I was genuinely begging for any additional context I could get for that letter that Cyrus sent in November of 2003. Like, think a dog that's been inside for seven hours and you just got home. I was literally vibrating at the door ready to get balls deep in all the details I could by the time Cyrus hit me back on that one, or I would never have opened with it. I like to come at you pretty immediately with what I want, though I like to dress it up in a lot of fancy apologies in advance for bothering you and reassurances that it's totally okay to tell me to fuck right off. I'm getting better. But you guys, I'm going to drop the details of every other thing Sarver told me about that night and about the days and weeks and months and months and years that have followed, but we're getting close to time. And you're probably almost done with that laundry or that workout or that commute or whatever experience you're numbing with the dulcet tones of my endless yammering. And I want to spend what time I have left with you drawing attention to another missing persons case that did turn out to be a homicide that involved Warren County, though it originated across the state line in Chautauqua County, New York, and in which Rick Hernan and John Herzog both played parts as well. So because I didn't feel like he had enough crap to do already, I asked Dean if he could look into this for me. Damien's aunt, Anziette, and also Aiden Neeport, who I mentioned earlier, the listener who caught up with the Crime Stoppers situation for me. 
have been asking and asking if I'm going to cover the Kathy Wilson case. And I keep saying stuff like, I really wish that I could go into that case, but I'm just too strapped with this one and I just can't add a second case. Since this case was a little bit before my time, and since Dean had a better memory of things than I did, I asked him for just a little bit of research. He gave me this, and I'm just going to read it for you as it's written because he's a writer too, so I'm sure it'll be fine. On May 18, 1988, Kathy Wilson, a 33-year-old Jamestown, New York woman who worked as a bookkeeper in Falkner, took her lunch break and never returned. Her blue Plymouth minivan was discovered in the parking lot at 1 a.m. the next day. Her skeletal remains were found 16 months later in Warren County by children playing in a creek bed on Lindell Road outside the tiny rural town of Lander. Jamestown City Police immediately suspected J. William Buckley, a career criminal in his early 30s, with a seven-page rap sheet, including a stint in prison for abducting a woman at knife point and accidentally killing another man in a collision during the ensuing police chase. Buckley, who claimed he was a machinist by trade, was a low-level thief from Niagara Falls with various arrests for burglary who moved to Jamestown in the mid-1970s. Police have never announced publicly what made Buckley their prime suspect in Kathy Wilson's disappearance, but by the summer of 1988, there was no doubt that Buckley was their white whale as they placed him under the constant surveillance into the fall. His friends, family, and associates were questioned as to his role, if any, as police searched for a link. They were particularly interested in a young 16-year-old Falconer teenager named Michael Brown. Brown was a known associate of Jay Buckley. In fact, he was facing charges on a burglary he committed with Buckley in the Bemis Point area. During the first two weeks of the Kathy Wilson investigation, Jamestown police reportedly interviewed Brown on a constant basis regarding what he might know about Buckley and Kathy Wilson. Later, a clinical psychologist who evaluated Brown described him as immature and easily influenced with an IQ of 87, which was considered to be in the lower range. A task force was eventually formed to coordinate the investigation, including various Chautauqua County Police Departments, the Chautauqua County District Attorney's Office, and a Pennsylvania State Police Trooper that we're now pretty familiar with, John Herzog. Herzog was included as a passive member of the task force after the victim's purse was discovered the day of her disappearance, lying along the berm of Route 62, just north of the Akeley Bridge. Soon after, the Chautauqua County DA's office announced a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrator in Kathy Wilson's mysterious disappearance. In the meantime, police continued to follow Jay Buckley's every move, developing a network of information they hoped might provide a break in the case. On the afternoon of September 22, 1989, 16 months after she vanished from Chautauqua County, Kathy Wilson's remains were found scattered along a dry creek bed in Warren County. Following the grisly discovery, Warren County District Attorney Richard Hernan announced that Pennsylvania held jurisdiction over whatever crimes had been committed, and Pennsylvania authorities would lead the murder investigation due to the location of Kathy Wilson's remains. In the meantime, Chautauqua County DA John Ward made it known to the media that New York had several suspects. As Pennsylvania's liaison to the Kathy Wilson task force, Trooper Herzog was dispatched to learn more. He was told that Buckley was the prime suspect and Mike Brown was the link to his arrest. Buckley was in jail on a burglary charge to which Brown was an accomplice. Brown wouldn't be charged with the burglary if he agreed to cooperate. Herzog and Trooper Michael Povlik began conducting interviews with Brown on September 29th, 
week after Wilson's body was found. Brown would later claim that he was told by police that if they could arrest Buckley for the murder of Kathy Wilson, Brown wouldn't have to testify against him for the burglary charge. Brown said that he was told if he could place Jay Buckley with Wilson, he might be eligible for some kind of reward money. According to Brown, Herzog took him to the Jamestown Police Department on September 29th to make a statement. Brown said that he told police that Buckley admitted to him that he kidnapped a woman and took her to a back road. Brown speculated that Buckley probably shot her after raping her. And after he was returned home, Brown claimed he called Jamestown police and asked if he gave them enough information to claim the reward money. Brown said he was told he would need to admit to actually seeing Buckley murder Kathy Wilson to be eligible. According to a report by Trooper Pavlik, Brown contacted Herzog later that night to say he had more information. Herzog and Warren County Detective Jim Tridico picked up Brown to take his statement, which was videotaped. Brown told police new details, including seeing Buckley with bloody clothing in a garbage bag. Brown said that Buckley burned the bloody clothing next to a street behind Brown's home. Police later searched the area of a stream and found no evidence of burned clothing. According to Brown, Herzog drove him back to Falkner at 3 in the morning. He said Herzog told him that police needed an eyewitness who saw Buckley rape and murder Kathy Wilson in order for the reward money to be claimed. At no point did the police have any evidence that Kathy Wilson had been raped other than Mike Brown's statement earlier in the day that Buckley probably raped her. Brown claimed that he told Herzog during the ride home that he was afraid of Buckley. He said that Herzog told him not to worry. Buckley was looking at a capital offense and would get the death penalty if convicted. On October 4th, realizing he hadn't provided enough details to police to get his hands on the 25000 Brown told Herzog in another statement that Buckley took him to a gravel pit and showed him the body of Kathy Wilson. According to Brown, Herzog and Pavlik took him to the gravel pit he described and then drove him south into Pennsylvania to Lindell Road, where they led him down a path where Wilson's remains were found and began asking him leading questions. Brown told him he had been there with Buckley and Wilson and that she was alive when she was taken from the van. It must be noted at this time that during each and every statement Brown gave to the police, his narrative and or details changed. Brown later claimed during an appeal that Herzog fed him details of the crime scene, evidence, and timeline for his testimony. He also reiterated his claim that Herzog told him police needed him to be an eyewitness in order for him to receive the reward money. Six days later, Michael Brown was driven to the Warren PSP barracks in a limo under the impression that he was going to collect $25,000. Instead, he was arrested after he arrived and charged with the kidnapping and murder of Kathy Wilson. In a written report, Herzog said that Brown was interviewed following his arrest and gave a detailed account of Wilson's kidnap, rape, and murder by Jay Buckley that he claimed to have witnessed. District Attorney Hernan announced Brown's arrest and declared there would be a second arrest forthcoming, shortly after Jay Buckley was charged and the extradition process put underway. Following Brown and Buckley's arrests, Herzog began working closely with Brown and Joseph Massa, the future Warren County District Attorney. Hernan chose not to run for re-election in Massa, who won in the primary and faced no opposition, would be sworn into that office in January. As a courtesy to keep him up to the speed in the Wilson case, Hernan appointed Massa as an assistant district attorney. As Herzog and Massa met with the star witness, his story began to morph and change until it was completely unrecognizable from his first statement he made to police. Brown claimed that Herzog and Massa fed him details from the investigation, correcting him when he made mistakes, including saying the wrong color of Kathy Wilson's clothing the day she vanished.
Herzog continued to file reports of various meetings with Brown, and these reports contained statements that contradicted information and details Brown had provided authorities through the investigation. In a statement Brown gave on December 22, 1989, Herzog, from your interviews, when we started, and each time we interviewed you, we went just a little bit further with each interview, and each interview you gave us a little more information. Sometimes the information was in addition to what you told us the time before. Sometimes it was a little bit of variation. Sometimes you told us, uh, it didn't really happen this way. You told me originally that Jay Buckley told you this. Then you told me that you were there when it happened, and then you finally got to the truthful part of where you saw it happen. Okay, you visually saw it. It took us a while to get to that, and we had to push you and explain the reasons that you were telling us how this occurred couldn't have happened unless you saw it, right? Herzog again. Okay, we have some people who possibly can put you someplace that you say you were not, all right? Michael Brown, again, all we are asking from you is the truth. Not the way you want to paint it for yourself to make you look good. We want the truth from you. Michael, you have a deal. And I'm sure your attorney read you the deal and went over it. And it says that you will tell the truth at all times. Or this deal is null and void. It doesn't exist. And then, in fact, you will be prosecuted. Herzog went on to point out that by admitting he was at the crime scene, Brown has the potential of spending the rest of his life in jail. In subsequent interviews, Brown continued to fill in missing details that he apparently knew nothing about in the past. In the meantime, he continued to ask if he was eligible for the reward money, despite being held in jail. Brown was given a polygraph test in June of 1990 by a state police trooper at a local hotel. Later, during Buckley's murder trial, Buckley's defense attorney, Barry Smith, received a detailed letter from an anonymous source claiming that Brown broke down during the examination and recanted his entire testimony, saying it was all a lie. Brown allegedly told the officer administering the polygraph that he had become trapped in his own scheme to collect the reward money, and he had no knowledge of Kathy Wilson's murder. Brown claimed he was coaxed and coerced into giving the false testimony by Herzog and Warren County DA Joe Massa. The county's case against Buckley came crashing down during Buckley's trial when Brown imploded on the stand under the weight of cross-examination. Buckley's attorney began catching Brown in lie after lie during his testimony, eventually tallying over 750 falsehoods for the jury's consideration during deliberations. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty after a shockingly brief six hours of deliberation. Buckley was returned to New York to face his burglary charge, and Brown was sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison. He previously pleaded guilty to lesser charges of indecent assault, felonious restraint, and hindering apprehension as part of his deal with the DA. After being sentenced, Brown filed a motion to withdraw his guilty plea for reconsideration of that sentence. During the hearing that followed, Brown stated that he lied at Buckley's trial and that he was never an eyewitness to any crimes in the Kathy Wilson case. He said that Buckley told him about killing Kathy Wilson, and Brown said he told police that he was an eyewitness in order to receive $25,000 reward money. He went on to reiterate that once arrested, he was coached and prompted by the police and the DA to repeatedly change his story so it coincided with the physical evidence and timeline of the case. He said he altered his accounts to satisfy authorities' desire for an eyewitness and because he was threatened with the withdrawal of his plea agreement. Warren County Judge Robert Wolfe, who presided over the hearing, in addition to presiding over Buckley's murder trial, granted Brown's motion to withdraw his guilty plea, pointing out efforts by Brown and D.A. Joe Mass at a patched-together testimony. Wolfe added that he was, quote, compelled to conclude, end quote, that the state knew Brown's testimony was without merit. 
Wolf authorized District Attorney's Office to reinstate the original charges against Brown, but Massa declined, and the charges were considered null pros. I don't know if that's how you say that word. <laughs> In 1998, a PSP spokesperson from Erie told the Buffalo News that the state police's investigation of Kathy Wilson's murder was over when Jay Buckley was arrested. The fact that there was never a conviction in that case is not our issue, the spokesperson said. But as far as we are concerned, there was never any evidence leading to another suspect. The state police changed their tune 22 years later when state police in Warren and Erie confirmed in 2020 that they planned to question six people about the murder of Kathy Wilson, and all six had previously been interrogated before Buckley was charged with her murder. To date, no information has been provided concerning the results of those interviews. You hear me tap them papers? You know, I'm too irritated to even script this. You remember a couple episodes ago when I talked to that really fucking smart guy and he said that mistakes that we learn from are well learned, but the ones that we don't learn from we're destined to repeat again and again and again. (laughs) Kathy Wilson case happened in the late 1980s and I see way too many parallels in the way that John Herzog is talking to people in these interviews like Dave and Steven and saying who he's got problems with and who is and is not going to wind up in the middle of a murder investigation. I can't remember if I gave you guys this one or not, but on page 46, let me just check my notes. On Tuesday, October 23rd, 2002, on page 46, of this Herzog report regarding Damien. At the bottom of the page, he's been talking to David. He's been telling David all about how David's a liar. And then he says, he writes here, Herzog says, I again said to David that it appeared strange to me that after partying with Damien on Friday and talking about having a party on Saturday and blah, 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 blah. I told David as I left that he better get his facts together because when they find Damien, he's going to be in the middle of a homicide investigation. Now, I guarantee you, Dave did not know at this time what had happened to Michael Brown. I really bet he wishes he had. (sighs) Y'all. There is a reason that a reporter can get more people to talk to her than a cop can. And there's a reason that a reporter can get more details from those people than a cop can. And all those details might not be true, but she ain't got shit if nobody's going to talk to you. And this bullshit that I've been covering today is why no one would talk to these people. I don't have time for it. I don't have time. Smoke is a weekly true crime podcast written and told by me, Stacy Gross of Two Moms Media. Your producers are myself and Brian Hagberg of Your Daily Local. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by my father, Bob Gross. Dean Wells provided the voice of Jim Sarver for this episode, and he also provided the last few minutes of narration in the research of Kathy Wilson's case. Big thanks for that, Dean. If you have information to share with police about Damien or his case, call Detective Tiffany Post at 814-723-2700. 
If you have stories, memories, or information on Damien or his case that you don't want to share with police, reach out to me instead at 814-230-5855. Texting is the quickest way to get at me. If you're liking the show, leave us some stars or a rating or a view on whatever platform you're using to listen. It makes a huge difference for us, and it also helps get more ears on Damien's case. Until next week, kids, eyes and ears open. Let's find Damien. <laughs>